If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. We'll be looking this evening at Joshua chapter 20 and chapter 21, looking at the cities of refuge and the Levite cities. And this is, of course, one of the challenges to the preacher who is committed to preaching expositionally through books, especially aspects of narrative in the Old Testament. You come across areas that become a challenge to preach through. It's not the normal three points in a hymn, or three points in a poem, I guess it is, uh, that you can do uh, at, at the end of this. But uh, the Lord has given us His Word, and every aspect of His Word is a blessing to us. And so, uh, as we look at these uh, texts, I think we will see things that teach us about who God is. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word, We will read through chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Joshua chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent, or unknowingly, may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city, and give him a place." And he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly, and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town, and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, and from the tribe of Rumen, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation." Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So they, so by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And the text goes on to tell us city by city and tribe by tribe. And then we pick up here at the end at verse 41. 
The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands round it, so it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord our God, Lord we ask this evening that you would speak to us through your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us that you are a promise-keeping God and that you are a God who is just and true and right, but merciful and loving. Lord, help us as we study your word to know you better, that we might love you, that we might serve you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have two main divisions of our text here this evening. The first deals with the cities of refuge that are set up within Israel. And the second deals with the cities that are given to the Levites. As we look first at chapter 20, we see that Joshua is establishing something that the Lord had already given to Moses. That is, to set up cities of refuge within the promised land. We have seen this before, where Joshua is executing something that has already been stated by the Lord. That before the promised land was even entered into, God had told Israel what they were to do. And we see here God commanding that cities of refuge for killers be set up. Now why does the Lord do this? I think the first thing that we can learn from these cities of refuge, from this text, is the value of life. That is, that the Lord himself is the creator of life. He is the one who made man in his image. And because of this, man has value. The Lord said to Moses in Genesis 9, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whosoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is something that is worth going back to in our day and age. Because it seems that in our culture, in our society, we have a great deal of difficulty understanding what the value of life is. We look at people and we decide some have a value of life and others don't. We prey upon the weak in the womb, the infirm, those who are sick, those who are facing death. And somehow we see their value as being less based on their value to society. The irony is at the same time, society is heightening the value of non-persons. There are times where it seems, and perhaps you have seen this said, that there are more protections afforded by the federal government 
to bald eagle eggs than to embryos in the womb. And so what we see here with the cities of refuge is that God is the creator of life and he puts value on life. And the challenge here is, is that because of sin, the world is a very dangerous place. And so we see this brought out in the circumstances that are laid forth in God's law. It is, even though life is valued, life can be taken. Someone could murder someone with what we call malice aforethought. The Bible describes this as someone laying in wait for another person, planning or plotting someone's death. We tend to think of this as murder in the first or murder in the second degree. It is a calculated kind of killing for advantage. Someone else could kill someone in a rash of emotions, taking leave of their senses. And while this is still killing, it is different from a kind of premeditated killing. We see this in our law as a manslaughter. It is different in kind than murder. Someone else could kill someone in self-defense, protecting his family, his children, or his wife, or his own life. And that, of course, is also very different from both of the previous cases. But there is also the possibility that someone could be killed accidentally. And we, we cannot take each of these as being the same case. In fact, our law does not do this. Our law has many provisions for varying types of killing. There are murder in various degrees. There are manslaughter in various degrees. There are negligent homicides. We've gone to great lengths because we know that there are varying circumstances. The problem for the ancient world was this. It did not have a sophisticated system of justice administered by the government. In the ancient world, there was kind of an odd private system of justice. If someone was killed, typically the nearest relative to the person who was killed would be named the avenger of blood. And that person's job was to find the person who had killed his relative and to kill him in return. Now, in one sense, this is a very swift and easy way of enacting justice. But in another sense, it doesn't take into account the nuances we've just been talking about that death brings in a sinful world. We tend to think of this as an eye for an eye. But there's a problem. What if the killing wasn't a murder? What if there were extenuating circumstances? The Bible itself gives us an example. Now, it may seem humorous to you now because we don't do this today, but you could think of the application in our day and age. The Bible describes two men who go off to chop wood. And one man, as he's chopping wood, lifts his axe and the axe head flies off of the axe and strikes the second man, killing him. It's clearly a case of an accident. There's no hatred involved. They were involved in a common task. It's just something that happened. But we also can't write it off as it doesn't matter because there's a death that's occurred. And so what God does here is he provides for Israel a system of justice. And it's a system that we can look at and gain some benefits from. 
what God does is He takes six cities where the Levites are to reside. And we'll see where the Levites reside in just a bit. But six cities, and He designates them as cities of refuge where the killer could flee and avoid the avenger blood. Now, it is important for us not to read this passage too quickly, not to see it as a way for a killer to get a get-out-of-jail-free card, for a murderer to escape justice. No, because you may notice from the text that what the killer has to do is he has to come to the elders of the city, and he has to plead his case and say, basically, please take me in. This is what happened. It was an accident. I didn't mean for this to happen. And I don't want to be killed by the avenger of blood. Now, if the elders decide that the story is not true or the circumstances don't fit the case, then what they are to do is to not take the man into the city. They're not to take murderers in so that they can avoid punishment. The Bible is very clear about that. No, instead what they are to do is, if they are to determine that the circumstances were accidental, that there was no hatred or malice aforethought, they can bring the killer into the city where he would be safe from the vengeance of the avenger of blood. Now, God makes it very clear that the guilty murderer should be punished and should not be given a place in a city of refuge. Numbers 35 says this, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You see, God here is clearly distinguishing between those who seek to kill someone out of hatred or self-gain, and those who are involved in accidental circumstances. And what we see here is God establishing justice in an imperfect world. Now, God didn't make the world imperfect. He didn't create the problem that brings this about. Sin did. But it's important for us to see that God cares about justice, often in ways that we do not. You see, he's concerned for justice both for the dead and for the killer. Wouldn't it we were more concerned in our society today for justice and life? We like our justice to be neat and tidy and to have no loose strings. But at the same time, we value life so lowly Our society does not want to give justice to the weak, to the infirm, to the voiceless. So here we can draw from God's principles of justice that life has value. And even in an imperfect world, we see God establishing justice. We can also see that God is very practical with His justice. He makes His justice available. Now, it would not actually be much help to the one who was fleeing the avenger of blood if there were only one city of refuge that was very far away. He would be tracked down and killed. The avenger of blood is sure to act swiftly. And so what you see here that may be lost in all of the names 
is that there are six cities designated as cities of refuge. And if you brought out your map of the Bible times, you would see that three of these cities are located west of the Jordan. Three of them are located east of the Jordan. Can you guess how they are located? One in the south, one in the north, and one in the middle. On each side of the Jordan. God is very practical and painstaking even in the way that he designates cities of refuge. These cities were to be accessible to those who are fleeing from the Avengers. God even went so far as to command Israel in Deuteronomy 19 to make sure that they established roads that went into the cities. The gates of these cities of refuge were to be left unlocked. It was to be available for someone to come into. And the elders in these cities would no doubt take their task very seriously. Because they would know they would be called upon, potentially, to judge. We would again do well to imitate God in this respect. It is not enough merely to speak about justice. We must be willing to work for it, to make it available to others. We must do the hard work to see justice done. And this is one of the reasons that in the church we have rules regarding discipline. Our book of church order is filled with varying rules of how we are to conduct church discipline, how witnesses are to be treated, how evidence is to be treated, the notice that is to be given to the accused. And you see, all of this is done because we seek justice, not vengeance. And this is one of the reasons why we strive for this in our justice system. Now, no one is going to say that our justice system is perfect. But if you stack our justice system against all of the other systems throughout all of the history of mankind, it comes across as one of the best that the world has ever seen. I mean, just think about the fact that prosecutors are required to give any exculpatory evidence to defense attorneys. They can't hold it back. They're required by law to hand it over. Think about a government that prosecutes but also pays for the defense to have representation so he's not left by himself. This is a far cry from the days of debtor's prisons where you were thrown into prison, presumed guilty, and until you could work your way out, you had no hearing or trial. God has provided a resolution for this challenge that we can look to. Now, the refugee would not be completely free because there is a consequence to death. This is one of the things that keeps parents up at night. It's that our teens and younger children don't understand because they haven't experienced it as much. That death is final. That I'm sorry doesn't change death. That there's a consequence that goes on because of death. There is a disruption. There is a cost because of death. And so we see this even with the way that the Lord handles the city of refuge. 
Someone who is even accidentally brought about a death must give up their life at home. They must give up their job, give up their family. They are safe from being killed, but they must live in this city of refuge. It is a challenge. Their life has been disrupted. But also, it was not to be a sentence forever. There is a provision that when the high priest died, the killer could then go back to his home. Now, this is up to God's providence. If you happen to accidentally kill someone, and the man sitting in the high priesthood seat is 25, you are facing a challenge. If he's 85, it might not be so long. But all of this is completely separate and apart from the circumstances of the death. It is left up to God's providence. But it is a picture for you and for me that satisfaction must be had for blood. Only death can resolve that satisfaction. The second group of cities that we read about are the Levitical cities in chapter 21. And what happens is the Levites come to Joshua claiming the promises of God. They come to Joshua and they say, God told Moses to give us these cities. We've conquered the land. Now we think we should have our cities. And this should now be a familiar pattern to you. We've seen this more than once. We saw this with Caleb claiming the promises of God. We saw this with the daughters of Zelophad saying it had been promised to us. And this Levitical city promise is actually very practical for you today. Because what it teaches us, and we should not lose sight of this, is that the promises of God are there for us to claim. Those promises that are given to us are ours to grab hold of and to claim. We don't need to be shy about it. God has given us those promises. And just as we saw this morning in the Lord's Prayer, God puts before us what we are to pray for so that we would have confidence. So we approach the Lord with all confidence. The Levites come to Joshua because they have a need. They were, you recall, the only tribe that was not given any land. And this was because they were dedicated to the service of the Lord. And yet, at the same time, they had real needs. Now, this is a principle that the Bible puts forward for the servants of God. I can tell you that as a servant of God, being spiritual doesn't put food in your stomach. It doesn't keep a roof over your head. You still have all of the same needs and all of the same provisions that everyone else does. And this is a theme that Paul will pick up in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says the, way, the, the labor is worthy of his wages. And so what God does here is he gives us an example here of providing for his servants in the midst of their brothers. Now notice that the Levites are not given their own cities off somewhere in the distance. Instead, they live with others and have what they need. Food, 
housing, pasturing. But each of these cities is in a land where other tribes are living. And what this reminds us is that God is not oblivious to the earthly needs of His people. He provides for them. But there's something else going on as well. Why didn't God just give the Levites their own cities? Why did He spread them out over all of Israel? Why did He put them in amongst all of the other people? I think what is happening here is the Levites are a living parable of what it means to be a sojourner in the world. Everyone could see them as they served the Lord. They were sojourners. They had no true home to call their own. They had no inheritance. They were provided for by God, but they had no place to call their own. And this is exactly the position that Abraham was in, wasn't it? Do you recall that the only piece of land that Abraham owned was a graveyard, a burial plot? Even our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament said that he had no place to lay his head. He said, the fox have their holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And we indeed are called to be strangers and pilgrims in our world. And so the Levites are a living example of us of what it means to be in the world, but not of it. They are mixed in amongst God's people, and God provides for them. The Levites were also a blessing to those who were around them. Another reason why the Levites were sprinkled, as it were, throughout Israel was to be leaven throughout Israel. That is, to promote the worship of God, to promote the piety of God. Calvin puts it this way in describing the way the Levites are settled. He says they were appointed as a kind of guardians in every district to retain the people in the pure worship of God. It is true, they were everywhere strangers, but it was still with the very high dignity of acting as stewards for God and preventing their countrymen from revolting from piety. This is the reason for stating so carefully how many cities they obtained from each tribe. They were everywhere to keep watch and to preserve the purity of sacred rites unimpaired. And when we understand that the Levites' tasks not only included worship, but also teaching, we see this. In a similar way, followers of Jesus are called to be salt and light in our communities. We're not to hide away from the world, but to be a living example of Jesus to others. This section ends in verses 43 through 45 on a note of God's faithfulness. After having described the cities of refuge and God's justice and the cities of the Levites and being strangers and pilgrims, once again we are reminded that God did what He promised in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it And they settled there. 
Sometimes we need this kind of stark reminder that God keeps his promises. One commentator, Del Ralph Davis, puts it this way, I think, wonderfully. By emphatic repetition, he, that is the author, pummels Yahweh's fidelity into our senses. Now, look at these last few verses. Verse 43, the land that he swore, verse 44, just as he had sworn. Over and over again, it is brought to our attention that what God swears, he will bring about. Do you live each day in the knowledge of that truth? Because that is a truth that will keep us comforted, safe, and optimistic about our future. Knowing that we are in the hands of our Lord and that what He has promised, He will deliver. As verse 45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That didn't stop in Joshua. Promises of the Lord to his people in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the Pauline epistles, and even in the book of Revelation, will come to pass if they have not already. Not one word will fail. And as we read the scriptures, that gives us confidence. It gives us confidence because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ will return. That he will gather for himself his people. That he will gather them around the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that we will worship the Lord our God for all eternity. Because God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening... And we are thankful for your reminder that you keep each and every one of your promises. Lord, help us to dwell upon your promises. To know that there is none like you. And that you are indeed ever faithful. Help us, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.